Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's the news, and we get a couple of things to talk to you about today. One of them is The Last of Us, the adaptation of a video game, a PlayStation video game uh, about a world populated by zombies and people who are lucky enough not to become zombies. And that all sounds kind of like familiar fare. And plus, who wants to see something that's adapted from a video game? But special effort has been made to kind of take this thing up out of its genre. Uh, it is directed by Craig Mazin, who is associated with uh, the series Chernobyl. Um, so anyway, we'll tell you more about that. We'll also tell you more about Triangle of Sadness, one of the 10 films nominated for Best Picture uh, by a Swedish director and kind of unlike anything I've ever seen before and in a good way for once. After the news. I can't really get all the way up to the, you know, title chorus. And this needs a little bit of explaining, too. So, uh, first of all, welcome to The Nose. Second of all, we're going to be talking secondarily uh, about Triangle of Sadness, one of the um, top ten movies, one of the movies nominated, excuse me, uh, for the Best Picture Oscar. Uh, and, but before we do that, we're going to talk about The Last of Us, which is an HBO Max adaptation of a video game that's very famous among video game players, but perhaps we, the rest of us might not have never, ever heard of it. Um, however, the reason that we're <laughs> the reason we're playing the Linda Ronstadt song is episode three of The Last of Us, which is like you know, I mean, it's nominally about zombies and uh, a man and a young girl on a quest that involves getting through zombies and people who, have, the way they always do, become worse than the zombies. Um, but it's also the the whole thing just pauses and tells this remarkable story of a long-term, unexpected gay relationship uh, in like a, you know, more than a decade-long gay relationship. Um, And the Trigger song is really kind of that song. And apparently, streaming activity of that song kind of went nuts uh, after uh, after that episode three night. Everybody wanted to hear the song. I guess a lot of people... I don't know the video game. A lot of people didn't know that song. You know, we're all different. Anyway, who's on the nose today? That's the real question. Raquel Benedict 
is the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction, and she's the host of the Right Good podcast. This is one of these things where I have to spell everybody's podcast, R-I-T-E-G-U-D, because you want to look it up afterwards, <laughs> right? Rebecca Castellani is co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer. I don't have to spell anything, which is nice. <laughs> and Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean, S-H-A-W-N podcast. <laughs> all right, that's all the spelling I'm going to do, uh, unless I mention. Although I have to say, I listened to... Um, uh, something called the Frank Film Podcast. Do any of you know this one? It's it's Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones and two of her friends. And they're just terrific together. They really, they, I just listened to them discuss Triangle of Sadness and I learned all kinds huh. of things that I had not known. So early recommendation. All right. So, um, you know, Sean, I think you kind of have to kick things up, off for us because you're the person who's played the video game. Although, let me just preface that by saying... And there's a very long and very good New Yorker article about this. The whole project here is to make a series that a non-video game appreciator uh, could could enjoy and, and one that isn't bound by the inherent limitations of a video game or whatever was in the video game. So they are as much in the business of violating a lot of the precepts and ideas of the video game or dramatically altering them as they are making the whole thing work so that fans of the video game don't get mad when they watch it. So I don't know, maybe just sort of, can you just kind of give us a sense of how these things, these two things track, Sean, the the video game and the uh, HBO Max series? Well, thank you, Colin, for the opportunity to do so. Um, (laughs) Sean and I, I Sean and I are very formal with each other. <laughs> yes. Professional relationship only. Um I think this I'm I'm a huge fan of The Last of Us video game. One of my five favorite video games of all time. I think it's an excellent game. And I think this is an excellent show, partially because it does a great job of following the video game video game story, but not being afraid to deviate or um alter or like um, enhance elements of the story that don't fit the the medium. I think a lot of people like a lot of a lot of fans of like something that's being adapted often complain like this is different from the game or this is different from the movie or the book. And it's like it's of course it's different. It's a different medium. Like this, it's a different thing entirely. Like I, I heard a lot of people say that they don't like Joel, the character, uh, the lead character played by Pedro Pascal in The Last of Us show. Like not even like as a complaint. He's like I, he's not a likable guy. Like, he's not supposed to be likable. But in the game, you don't care that he's not likable because you play as Joel. Like, like even if, whether or not you agree with his decisions or you like his attitude, you kind of internal and you accept it because he is you essentially. So, and that's one of the hard things about adapting video games is that how do you, um, like convert the feeling that you get as as a first person participant in a game to this medium and i think they've done an excellent job of like they think there's a lot more like zombie or infected encounters in the game th- than there is in the show because at some point like, how many zombies can you see like we get it's scary like in a show you need to like have actual drama in a game you need to like keep people wanting to like you can't only just walk around and just talk to people. I mean, there are games like that, but I, I don't know. It's a great, it's a great show. Great, great game. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we go to uh, Rebecca and Raquel, uh, let me just uh, let you hear a little bit. I mean, and maybe to set this up for, for Rebecca, um, you know, I, I think the show either works or doesn't work. A lot of it depending on um, uh, on the relationship, uh, the way that the relationship is is played out and spelled out. 
between the two protagonists. Pedro Pascal, as Sean said, plays Joel Miller. He's a guy in his 50s, kind of feeling uh, every day of his age as he tries to get through uh, the decades in the kind of post-apocalypse or ongoing apocalypse, really. Bella Ramsey uh, is uh, uh, Ellie Williams, a, a young girl who appears to hold a possible medical key to dealing with the zombie apocalypse in, somewhere in her genetics. Both of them were in Game of Thrones. <laughs> they had <laughs> no scenes together, I believe, but they're both in Game of Thrones. Uh, let's hear a little bit uh, of them uh, just kind of talking about this is they're on the road together in, in the car and Ellie's still trying to figure out some stuff about Joel what's his name whose name your brother Tommy younger older younger why isn't he with you long story is it longer than 25 hours because I think that's what we got Tommy's what we used to call a joiner dreams of becoming a hero so he enlists in the army right out of high school a few months later, they ship him off to Desert Storm. It's what they called that war, it doesn't matter. Point is, being in the army didn't make him feel much like a hero. Cut to 12 years later, outbreak happens. He convinces me to join a group making their way up to Boston, which I did, mostly to keep an eye on him, keep him alive. And Tommy meets Marlene. She talks him into joining the Fireflies. The same mistake he made when he was 18 to save the world. Pipe dream, man. Fireflies awful. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? I mean, you gotta try, right? You haven't seen the world, so you don't know. You know, uh, we've only seen four episodes so far. I mean, that's all there are to see. Uh, but Rebecca, I do feel as though these two performances are really, really interesting. And, and maybe especially Bella Ramsey as Ellie, who has this unusual job of she's kind of not seeing the world at all. I think this is like her first time in a car going anywhere. <laughs> um, you know, everything's kind of new. And, and she's trying to be as normal as she can under these wildly un abnormal circumstances. But I'd just love to know what you're thinking about that relationship or anything else for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every time, the last six times I've been on the show, you and I have referenced Station Eleven, but yeah. it has that same level of like the next generation doesn't know what a telephone is. They don't know what a refrigerator is. There's this innocence that's really kind of drags you more into the story than, let's say, The Walking Dead where everyone still kind of has an understanding of what the world used to be. They're still pining for it. I really, really appreciate when additions to this genre do that time skip and they maybe give you a little bit of the setup. It's always nice to see the world fall apart, but then to have like a pretty sizable gap and you really are reconnecting with these characters after they've kind of gotten over all of that initial, I mean, everyone's still traumatized, don't get me wrong, but that initial like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna survive? Raid the grocery stores, stock up on meds, rebuild civilization and all the growing pains that go along with that. I feel like we've seen that so often. And this show has done a really nice job of skipping over all of that, getting us right to a new angle, which is idea of cure. You know, a lot of these zombie movies don't even go there. The, the zombie television shows, movies. I think one of the only ones I can think of that teases the idea of a cure is World War Z. But all of those movies and television shows are so fixated on set piece gore, set piece gore, People are worse than the zombies. It's just so many of these archetypes hit over and over again. And what I'm really enjoying about The Last of Us so far is it has taken so much time just to focus on the relationships between the characters. And the fact that uh, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey's characters, Joel and Ellie, 
haven't really shared a lot of time together. It's almost like they've spent as much time together as we've spent with them. They have this depth of their connection and this banter that is just so organic and so believable. And I'm really, really enjoying that people-centric focus on the traditional zombie genre. Yeah, actually in The Walking Dead, you know, pretty early on, uh, I forget the name of the actor who does, does this. He's, he's like in everything. He's Stan in The Americans. Uh, he's like mm. the last guy at the CDC and he, blow, yes. he blows up the CDC. Yes. <laughs> like so much for Oh trauma, my gosh. You know, which actually I, turned out to be kind of prescient in terms of like how well the CDC functioned during the actual pandemic. <laughs> but but um, so, you know, I and the other thing about, yeah, the, all the things, I mean, uh, shout out to Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald who pointed out that the, the, the sort of the second major uh, venue for the series is Boston. And it's the pandemic started in '03, which means that nobody in Boston saw the Red Sox win the World Series. They're just like, you know, it's like all these things that they don't know. So, uh, Raquel, maybe as a speculative, as the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction, maybe you could say a little bit more about this: how they're how they're structuring the plot, what it looks like to your eyes. I mean, this is sort of a road story. This is a, a story about a journey rather than sticking in one place and trying to defend it and falling apart because this is following the structure of the video game. And that's not, well, I, I'm not trying to sound like a jerk, but I kind of have seen that before in a lot of uh, zombie and post-apocalyptic fiction. I mean, there's Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which isn't a zombie story, but it's a post-apocalyptic story. There's Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, which is another post-apocalyptic zombie-ish journey story that focuses on relationships. So, I, I mean, I don't think this is a bad show. I think it's decent, but it's just, for me, there's not quite enough in it to differentiate it from the many, 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 many post-apocalyptic and zombie things that we've had since George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Is, is there anything that they're doing? I mean, yes, there, there's this kind of interesting relationship. And I agree we've seen stuff like that before. It could even be argued that whatever that horrible Obi-Wan Kenobi thing was uh, uh, on Disney+, Plus, where you see the young Princess Leia and there's this kind of – she's doing a lot of wisecracking with him about what a you know janky Jedi he turns out to be. Um, so, yeah, we've seen that before. I don't know. Well, actually, Raquel, help us pivot towards one of the things that has been kind of interesting and controversial. I mentioned it before. Uh, maybe we'll just uh, play a clip. This is going to be A3, uh, Cat. But this, in the middle of uh, of the early part, in, in episode three, they just pivot towards this kind of, you know, kind of bottle episode that takes place in the house of a guy played by Nick Offerman, a survivalist who unexpectedly lets a man into his life, and they turn out to be a very loving and supportive gay couple. This is A3. This is my street, too. Just let me love it the way I want to. And I'm fixing up some of the shops. Whoa. Not the stupid ones, just the, the wine shop and the furniture store. And the clothing boutique. The boutique? Are, are we hosting formal garden parties now? No. But we are going to have friends. <laughs> Excuse me? We're going to make friends. And we will invite them to visit. We don't have friends. Frank, we will never have friends because there are no friends to be had. I've actually been talking to a nice woman on the radio. You what? 
I should probably mention that uh, Frank is played by Murray Bartlett, I think most recently seen in season one of White Lotus as the hotel mm-hmm. manager, uh, the beleaguered and besieged <laughs> hotel manager. Um, I also, also should tell you it's Noah Emmerich who blew up the CDC. Pants is feeding me all this stuff now. Uh, and that the series I couldn't think of the name of is actually called Obi-Wan Kenobi. All right. So that brings, <laughs> that brings us up to date. But so, Raquel, this is maybe if anything was going to maybe raise the antennae of, uh, of video game completists, you know, this... This is a little bit of a pause. Uh, apparently, the relationship is kind of mentioned in the video game, but certainly not developed this way. I don't know. Was that anything new? Did that feel like it was something that could get you not thinking about all of the precursors? I mean, I think it was good. I think it was well done. I, I just feel weird about how it's being presented as, ah, this has never been done before. Well, it has. And that's okay. I mean, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every generation, and it's unreasonable to expect a a series based on a video game to be wildly, wildly, let's do everything new. Uh, One thing that I did find kind of interesting about it is the variation on that prepper suburbanite fantasy of I can maintain my suburban lifestyle without anybody else, because that's sort of the fantasy of being affluent, but also being a rugged individualist, which you you can't do. It is impossible to do both of those things simultaneously. And I'm thinking part of the reason why this episode got so many people's hackles up and in particular got so many like right-wing conservatives mad is because it takes that fantasy and it makes the hero of that reactionary fantasy not just gay but it's really strongly implied that the ron swanson character is the bottom in this relationship <laughs> like it wasn't enough to just make him gay like he yeah. is he is not the top this is going to be really hard for parks and rec fans uh, for even to have you say that i think it's going to be hard yes ben shapiro uh, in particular completely teed off on this thing and you know, you know, without ever saying I'm homophobic and that's why I don't like this, uh, went on at some length uh, about it. So, so yeah, Sean, we should because this was so talked about. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but it really wasn't what you exactly expect to find. I think if you think you know what you're getting into with The Last of Us, not at all, and especially because the so uh, Nick Offerman's character Bill. Uh, when you first encounter him in the game, uh, it's a very intense level where you stumble, stumble across, um, you get caught in one of Bill's traps that he set up for the infected and you're hanging upside down in this garage and you have to like get your gun and um, like kill a bunch of zombies while you're hanging upside down while Ellie's trying to cut you down. Very intense. It's completely absent from the episode. And I know a lot of people who are fans of the game were looking forward to that, seeing that scene, but it, like it wouldn't be rendered the same on screen because like you're not playing as Joel when you're watching the the show, you're watching it happen, and it's like again, like I said before, how many times do you see like oh it's a scary zombie before you like hey this is kind of getting old, and like honestly it's one of my favorite levels in the game. I don't miss it at all. Like it's mm. it's it because with the story that was told was so much more like it was it was it was an interesting story. That's that that scene is very intense and fun, but it's like what they did with these characters is like expands on what what is. Imp- that relationship is present in the game but it's talked about like you find about it like in conversation and reading notes and stuff but like like expanding on it and making it like a real like emotionally engaging and like heartwarming story is like way better and like that's what i like about adaptations is like you can find avenues to make the story something that fits this medium rather than like trying to mimic the game so I, we have to talk about at least one more thing here. Uh, so in, in episode four, they've made it to Kansas City. I'm going to try to do this without spoilers, 
But they made it to Kansas City. It's 2023 at this in the time of the series. So they make it to Kansas City. And of course, most of the people in Kansas City are in New Orleans for the Super Bowl because the Chiefs are in. <laughs> no, no, they're not. There's nothing like that's <laughs> happening. The whole thing is just devolved into this hellscape. But Rebecca, although you and I often uh, argue about subtexts of things, I think we have very <laughs> si- we have we have very similar tastes about a lot of stuff. Uh, and I'm guessing that you're as excited about Melanie Linsky <laughs> yes. as I am. So we, when we arrive in Kansas City, the people are the problem, much bigger problem than the zombies. So the, it looks like there's this kind of zombie cake that's like rising in a basement somewhere. There's <laughs> like like tw- four and twenty blackbirds that are zombies are going to break out of it a little bit later. But that hasn't happened. So people. Highly militarized, crazy people, and and Melanie Linsky plays Kathleen, who's leading this armed resistance. You know, and she's Melanie Linsky, Melanie Linsky, which means like she's not, you know, she's not jacked. <laughs> she's Melanie Linsky. She's like this soccer mom who said, "This would be so much easier if I had a lot of guns and nobody could talk back to me." Um, but I don't know. Just uh, I'm I'm dying to know your reaction, actually. I was thrilled. I mean, I loved Yellow Jackets. I love that we're having a Melanie Linsky assance, just like the Pascal assance. I was so excited to see her pop up. I actually didn't know she was going to appear in the show. So I was genuinely surprised to see her and delighted. And I think that maybe what I was trying to get poorly at earlier was that unlike a lot of the stuff I have seen, it tends to be like really POV focused, whether it's Rick or the father in the road. I do feel like the show is doing a really, really good job of letting the ensemble cast have their moment to shine. And even though Melanie Linsky wasn't on screen for that long, she really made an impression. The writing for her was fantastic. And I think that's what I'm really kind of latching onto when I say this one feels different. It just feels like instead of doing what the game did, which is, you know, you go from conflict to conflict, you kill a bunch of zombies, like they're giving us these backstories. And it's not as much as Joel and Ellie are obviously the central two they're spending a lot more time getting to know the other people surrounding it and really humanizing them. And I don't think anybody can do more with less in terms of being a really human character than Melanie Linsky. So perfect casting. Hopefully she sticks around and we see her for a little bit longer. But even if it's just another episode, I feel like I'm going to be content because she is such a powerhouse performer. Yeah, no, I want more than one episode, but I think you might, your instincts are probably pr- pretty accurate. Feels <laughs> with like zombie gonna... shows, it tends to be a short stay. Right, yeah. And, and... I mean, I'm not going to say who she kills the first time you see her kill somebody, but it's like the most—it's <laughs> the most incredible kind of existential violation I can possibly imagine. And it's Melanie Linsky, so she still has that little sweet little kind of yeah. you know teeny little voice of hers, and uh, you know, and she's yeah, she's not some kind of tomb reading you know <laughs> athlete or something. Uh, so I don't know, Raquel. I don't even know what I want to ask you next. Although, I, do you want to talk about? Melanie Linsky and Kathleen? I think or? it's great casting. It's yeah. it's kind of fun seeing a woman who's, I, I feel like her role is just a Karen in the post-apocalyptic <laughs> society, which is the most terrifying thing I could possibly imagine. Yeah. yeah, so it's basically asking, you know, asking the zombies if they really are bird watchers. Um, <laughs> so, so, Sean, I don't know. We probably need to wrap this up pretty quickly here, but... Um, you know, there there is a sense, I think, for some people that this needs to move faster, uh, that there's an awful lot of big time being spent on exposition and stuff like that. And in a way, you've already answered that question, which is it's just not possible to create the video game, to recreate the video game. Wouldn't be worth doing. We should say the guy who's adapting it, I, did I say this already? It's Craig Mazin, who did, uh, did Chernobyl, which won every freaking award in the world, and which, to my embarrassment, I have not seen, although I'm going to go back and watch. 
Um, but there's kind of a sense that there's another artist here, Mason, who's who really does have a, a kind of interesting vision you want to see completed. I don't know, as somebody a little into the adrenaline, uh, adrenaline video, uh, the adrenaline of video games, are, are you okay with all this? Yeah, I think the... Um... I think the pace is fine for me. Like, like I don't know, like, like they want them to get to Wyoming in a day. Like, it, it, well, they are driving a, pretty fast anyway. They say stuff like, "Yeah, we'll be in Wyoming in eighteen hours," and I'm thinking, "No, you won't." There's no traffic, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it just it does. I, I do want to also shout out Sean Ryan and um, Chris Ryan and and Andy Greenwald, who are also pointing out the whole thing is being shot like in the Calgary area. So, like, everything kind of looks like, you know, I mean, at one point they, they start up a thing and there's a CG that says 10 miles west of Boston. That was so funny. Yeah, it doesn't look anything like 10 miles west of Boston. I've been, I've, I've been there. There isn't anything like that there. Uh, but we're going to cut them some slack on that. All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about Triangle of Sadness. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. We're back to the nose with Raquel Benedict, Rebecca Castellani, and Sean Murray. We're about to talk about Triangle of Sadness. A black comedy written and directed by Ruben Ostlin. It's his English-language directing debut. He's a Swedish director. Uh, this movie won the Palme d'Or Award at Cannes, and the previous movie that he directed, The Square, also won the Palme d'Or. So he's on a nice little run. Um, this is a difficult movie to describe, although we're going to try to do that. Uh, it is kind of almost a series of plots that nest inside each other. It's a literal three-actor. I mean, the three acts are very uh, obviously described to us. Uh, and so let's begin, uh, I believe we're going to begin here on, on, in Act 2, we're on a cruise ship, a real, real luxury cru- cruise ship, not the kind that people like us get to go on. You have to be, at minimum, a Russian oligarch. Uh, so we're, you're going to hear Zlatko Burek is exactly that, Dimitri. Um, Charibi Dean is Yaya, who's a fashion model. Uh, Harris Dickinson also plays Carl, uh, also a fashion model. And uh, Sunyi Mela plays Vera. Here we go, B1. I'm going to eat the pasta. 
Okay, so let me quickly just say, uh, Act 1 is almost entirely about the relationship between these two fashion models, Carl and Yaya, uh, and um, very much a conversation about how physical attractiveness can equate to currency, uh, which is a running theme throughout the movie. Um, The second act, which you just heard, uh, is on this incredibly high-end luxury cruise uh, in the area of Greece. Uh, in the ocean near Greece, um, and then the last takes place on an island. It's going to be hard to explain this whole island thing without doing a little bit of spoiling. So if you're really, really anti-spoiling, you might want to just depart here. But we're not going to spoil anything important or anything you wouldn't have seen, I think, in the trailer. So, Rebecca, uh, I could just tell as we were emailing, you're way more interested in talking about about this than you are in The Last of Us. So just say a little bit, just give me your your, your quick reaction to it. Oh gosh, that's really hard for this one. Like it's not a quick reaction kind of movie. Um, I watched this a couple months ago and I wasn't as clued into it as the second time around. I was kind of distracted the first half, which was a mistake because it's one of those movies you really need to pay attention to, to get all the nuances. And again, I don't want to go into spoiler territory, but Raquel picked up up on something that I hadn't gotten the first time around that kind of added to the layers of, guilt and blame that can go around but i think that this is just another example and i think probably one of the better examples of this sort of burgeoning eat the rich content genre that we seem to be in which you know you've got the white lotuses of the world you've got succession and i think this is doing a really really nice job of sort of teasing out the class infrastructure without being too heavy-handed with it i mean absurd things happen that are very like obviously satirical but it's very nuanced in its picture of power and who's on top and the striata of social class. Um, But again, it's a really hard movie to talk about. I mean, there's, you could talk about how fantastic many of the performances are. Woody Harrelson, as always, is hysterical, um, a really kind of underrated up and coming cast. But it's one of those movies I, after, even after that first watch, I wasn't completely tuned into it, stuck with me. I kept thinking about it. I really enjoyed revisiting it. And I think that it's really poised to do well and the American award cycle too. I think it could be an upset winner, maybe not for best picture, but I do think it will walk away with some awards. Yeah, there's some very sharp international casting here. My understanding is if we lived in the Philippines, we would really know who Dolly de Leon, who plays Abigail, is. Uh, I was amused that Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones appeared not to know, or at least you will seem like she didn't know, that Oliver Ford Davies, who plays Winston, is also in Game of Thrones, just not <laughs> in, in any scenes with her. So Game of Thrones is like the running running theme through here. Also diarrhea. I believe there's a diarrhea <laughs> joke in episode four of Last of Us. Yes. Uh, and then there's like just lots of diarrhea in this movie. I, there's no, no getting around that. So Raquel, first of all, did you did any of us watch this in, a, in movie theaters? Uh, did any of you guys do that? 
I wish. Oh. Would have been fun. <laughs> yeah. I would like to know what that's like because I'm one of the questions is how much you're going to laugh at this. So, mm. uh, so Raquel, I don't know. How funny did you find this? I mean, I find it, I found it sensible chuckle funny. <laughs> Not super chuckle. loud laughing, but yeah. a lot of sensible chuckles. Are sensible chuckles like sensible, sensible shoes? Like they're not flashy, but they're utilitarian? Yes. Yeah. Lots of, oh, a lot of those <laughs> throughout the movie. So say, say a little <laughs> bit more. What, what, you know, what is going on for you with this movie? What I found really interesting, which is something this movie gets that I think a lot of Eat the Rich movies don't get, is that it's not just upper class, lower class, or rich and capitalist class and then working class, but within that working class, within the serving class in this movie, there's a little miniature hierarchy. And I've experienced this from working at an expensive resort. There's this real hierarchy between front of the house, public facing Mm -hmm. staffs that require a lot of emotional labor. So that's like waitress, that's uh, hostess, that's bartender. And then back of the house staff, which is like cleaner, dishwasher, maintenance guy that are not tipped. And it's more physical labor, more sanitation labor. And the people in front of the house tend to be whiter and prettier and they make more money and make nice big fat tips. And the back of the house staff tend to deal with a lot of the grosser grimier more physically taxing stuff and they tend to be non-white they're more likely to be foreigners uh, non-native english speakers and i don't know a nice way to put this but not as conventionally hot Uh, (laughs) which is something that was really really striking in this movie among some of the the cast you've got paula who's sort of the head of the servants who wait hand and foot on the guests and then you've got characters like abigail who is responsible for cleaning up the barf after the disastrous seasick dinner scene right well i mean and not to you know hammer a nail too hard into this raquel but i mean uh one of the you know subtext all the way through this is if you are attractive you can trade that to somebody with a lot more power and resources than you have absolutely uh and and so and if you have power and resources you can get attractiveness uh, at a scale that your own physical appearance doesn't quote unquote entitle you to right yeah and i thought the it was so interesting in the way they do that with gender. Uh, in the beginning, Carl's a male model, and he's kind of frustrated because male models don't make as much as female models do. And he he's trying to be, have this egalitarian relationship with Yaya, but Yaya out-earns him by a whole lot. She's much more popular than he is. She's got a much better career. And he's frustrated, but then again, it's because... In a patriarchal society, female beauty is more valuable than male beauty because who's buying it? Well, it's being bought by sort of powerful men. There's a point in this film where we end up in a sort of matriarchal situation, and that's finally when Carl's beauty is a lot more valuable than Yaya's. Yaya's beauty is kind of irrelevant, and Carl's is actually something valuable. And both of them feel kind of weird about it. Yes, I think that's that's an understatement. But um, but yes, and, and beautifully described as well. So, Sean, I don't know. I think you and I have slightly different senses of humor. And this is a movie that I would have maybe not have expected to laugh at. And I found myself laughing. I think if I was in a movie theater and other people were laughing, I would have been laughing really hard. I was laughing pretty hard as it was. Um, I think you found this funny. And maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I thought it was very funny. Um, and I definitely would laugh. I didn't laugh super hard at home. Uh 
But if I was in the theater, I would have laughed definitely harder than I did. And especially because I just watched Super Bad the other day, and I was laughing like really hard at that. Like, and that's one of my favorite movies, but I didn't know if it was gonna like still be that funny to me. But even after watching Super Bad, I found this funny. I don't know that doesn't do anything. But the point is, um, recently they um, actually one of Ruben Oslin's other movies, uh, Force Majeure, yeah, was remade in America, starring Julia Louis Dreyfus and Will Ferrell, and it was like a paltry like imitation of what makes that movie funny um, mm-hmm. and good. And I was, that's what I felt like. I was I was saying uh, when we were talking about this uh, before uh, prior to the show, I feel like the American version of this would have been so like trying to be in your face and like yeah. casting like a Will Ferrell or something. It would be like it would be so big and like like one of the funniest scenes to me is the scene when um the uh, like the oligarch kind of guy mm-hmm. um his wife's body washes up on the shore and then he's like like mourning her and then he starts taking the jewelry off of like her neck and her fingers and it's like I feel like in that scene it would have been like Will Ferrell like like crying like way too hard and like like hamming it up like if in an american version i feel like it was just like subtle subtle enough to like get it across without um uh like having to say like hey this guy's a scumbag you know right well you know and and rebecca to that point i mean maybe the hammiest scene is the one, and I don't think this is going to wreck anything, but uh, is the one where uh, Woody Harrelson, who plays the ship's captain, who is just drunk all the time, from what I can tell. <laughs> He's like, never not drunk. He's just in various stages uh, of inebriation. He and the Russian oligarch are having this conversation, for some reason or other, into the PA system of the entire ship, while the ship is uh, is foundering, really, on high seas, and, and other bad things are happening. And they have this conversation that's it's kind of like you know William F. Buckley and, and Gore Vidal arguing about you know economic systems and stuff uh, and he, Woody Harrelson turns out to be the only ship's captain who has Eugene V. Debs quotes on his phone and uh, and the whole thing seems like it shouldn't work and it kind of does I, I was wondering what you thought of that too Rebecca I think the whole middle act kind of has that feeling of like, I can't believe this is working. Like I, there's just so much of it between the like ridiculous 15 minute bodily expulsion events to following up with this Marxist diatribe over the PA. I mean, it's just this piling on of ridiculousness. And for some reason, I think that's what almost makes it more believable to me. It's just like, this is how rich people behave. Like this is absolutely something I could see happening. And, staying with you know these characters that are willing to just sort of go down with the ship despite the fact that they could like make these alterations i I just thought that the way that it sort of like divided everything up into acts and kept you with different characters whilst you know showing how across the board bad everyone is there's no heroes in this movie there's you could say you root for certain people at different stages of the movie but i don't think a single person is an aspirational figure here whether they're at the bottom of the social strata or at the top. And I think that the way that it sort of makes you sympathize with these people and laugh along with them while also across the board being like, even, you know, the best intentions, the guy's still a drunk. Like, it's just great. I really appreciate how nuanced this film is. Right. I mean, I mean, Raquel, everybody has a chance to appall us. Uh, and sometimes we have a chance to maybe root for those people. I just wanted to say one thing about all this, and I, I don't know whether this is interesting or not. But one thing that I discovered is that Ruben Ostlin, his um, uh, his style of directing is that every single scene, the actors improvise the scene for twenty takes uh, with no expectation Whoa. with no expectation that it's going to be that's going to be used. Then they go into kind of final jeopardy, where there's five takes. 
uh, where they really have to make it work. And he hits a gong before the final, <laughs> the fifth and final day. Like, this, right, this that is, is insane. Like they could have put that what? in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Raquel, I think part of that is sort of, sort of saying, okay, so here's 20 takes where you can kind of relax and not worry. And we're not doing 20 takes because you screwed up. We're doing 20 takes because we were going to do them anyway. And then you've got five more where you know you're going to try to make it work there and it's not going to go to six. And, you know, a lot of the dialogue is like that. Even the stuff that Sean was talking about with the jewelry, you sort of feel like this probably wasn't arrived at by so much careful plotting as everybody's doing this really weird stuff, but somehow or other it seems kind of naturalistic. That is extraordinary. I didn't know that at all. That's because you don't oh, listen well. to Macy Williams' podcast. <laughs> that I, I can kind of see that, though, because in some ways a lot of these – these are conversations and and variations on on arguments and deeds that the characters have probably been doing for a long time. It does give sort of a, a lived-in feeling like this isn't the first time this character has thought this. This is just the first time he's expressed it in this particular way, which that would explain a lot and probably why they're not overly mugging or going excessive in the, in the Will Ferrell way. Yeah. <laughs> As oh. you said before. Um, yeah. And by the way, Sean, I share, and I got the feeling maybe if, if I re- read Rebecca's sound correctly, uh, your admiration for force majeure, the original force majeure, which is great, which also has somebody from game of Thrones in it. Game of Thrones. People are in everything now. There's just so many game of Thrones people. So I don't know. I mean, Sean, I guess, you know, one weird thing about this is I think we all liked it, but it's going to be a hard thing to recommend to another person. You know, I mean, you'd have to find out how they felt about diarrhea first, but you'd also have to find it's not the kind of thing where you could go, you're going to love this. Right. You would really have to sort of give the person a chance to decide for themselves. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where it's like you'd have to already be clued into their like appreciation for like similar uh like satires or whatever like because like even like the american an american satire like something like uh don't look now is like this is way different than what this is you know what i mean so it's um yeah it it, it is very like unwieldy it's it is like we all liked it but i don't i don't it would be hard to like even describe or say like hey you would like this because you like this because it's like it's it's not <laughs> it's and it's, it's like if you look at like plotting wise it's pretty straightforward story but it, it it goes in places that you would like it kind of meanders but not in a bad way like it's like that whole the, the, the period that takes place on the yacht is so like just bonkers but in the best way oh yeah and i, I do feel first of all i want to also say this movie was made for 15 million dollars and it actually looks like it cost a lot more um he made the square for less than nine million dollars a lot of people in hollywood are going to want to talk to austin <laughs> <laughs> it's like we'd like to work with you if you can do things like that for fifteen million dollars, and just for you guys' own information. So there's, we should say that there's uh, a lot of the second act, this luxury cruise thing. The second half of the second act, it just the ship is just pitching and rolling in high seas, and apparently that was shot on a stage, and they set it up with a gimbal so that the floor actually did that. Uh, so you know, anytime you see a, a you know a wine glass or something rolling. <laughs> Rolling down a, a slanted surface. It's because the floor was actually doing that uh, while they were playing it. So uh, I want him to do a sequel, just exploring the dynamics of Hollywood, a documentary of how they filmed this. This is fascinating. Yeah, I think the the making of Triangle of Sadness it would be a, probably have a limited audience, but but all I think all of us would be in it. All right, so Triangle of Sadness, 
go see it or see it on screen. You can, it's like two dollars and twenty five cents or something at this point on Amazon. So uh, watch it uh, and get ready for the Oscars because it's one of the nominees. Thank you. <laughs> So, thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, making the show sound good today. Jonathan McPants uh, is the producer of pretty much every Nose episode. This one is no exception. If I feel like we're teetering on the edge of chaos today because Lily Tyson, who's like the youngest person who works on this show, but is the senior producer and the only responsible adult associated with this show, is having the day off. And I just feel like at any moment we could go triangle of sadness big time. Uh, but so far that hasn't happened. Uh, all right, time to get the wonderful panel we have today to make some recommendations. Sean Murray, why don't you get us going? I would like to recommend, uh, I just read Waiting for the Barbarians by J.M. Kotze. Mm-hmm. Um, great novel uh, about this um British imperialist, uh, uh, like sort of mid-level um, like officer who's like um, sort of like winding up the, the the last years of his life um, uh, at this at the war front, and it's about um, like this sort of nomad force of um, quote unquote barbarians who are there expecting to attack but haven't attacked, and it's like it's really great. Ooh. Actually, yeah, I've, I've never read that. You make it sound really good. All right, uh, Raquel Benedict, what have you got for us today? I would like to recommend Blood Quantum. It's a 2019 Canadian horror movie. It's one of those post-apocalyptic zombie movies, but the twist or or whatever you want to call it in this one is that the only that there are some people who are immune to the zombification process after getting bitten, but the only people immune are Indigenous First Nations Canadians. So it takes place in a Mi'kmaq reservation, and there's sort of two camps, two schools of thought, and some are like, should we help? these white settlers or not should we just should we help them and try to move forward do we forgive or do we just let the zombies eat these people because they're terrible and it's a really really good really solid entry into the genre into the zombie apocalypse genre it's like yellowstone but in canada (laughs) with zombies Um, got it by the way i think graham green is popping up uh, pretty soon in uh, the last of us speaking of Native American actors. All right. So, um, Rebecca Castellani, what are you going to recommend today? Okay. Well, I've been looking forward to doing this show so I can recommend this documentary that I've been thinking about nonstop since I watched it in December. And that is Goodnight Oppie on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. It is a documentary charting the true story of the Mars rover's spirit and opportunity and their incredible mission that was supposed to be 90 days and ends up being much, much longer than that. The documentary is incredible. It charts a lot of the people that worked on these rovers throughout the entire course of their career. So you've got footage of them in their 30s. You've got footage of them in their 60s. It is just phenomenal. I cried. I've seen it twice now. The second time I saw it, we just got to the opening title card and I started crying. It's just inspiring, amazing, and really, really well done. So I cannot recommend enough Goodnight Oppie. And I've got time. I've got one quick one more for you. Um, And that is a book I just read in an airport while I was stuck in an airport for six hours called Luster. And it is a debut novel by Raven Leilani. 
And it's about this young black woman who gets involved in an open marriage with two white people. And it is just one of the funniest, darkest books I've ever read. And I just cannot stop thinking about it. I can't wait to read it again. And I would love for someone else to read it so they can talk to me about it. So I if you're second looking for that one. You've read it? Oh, great, Sean. We'll have to talk after this because I loved it. It was really, really good. All right. So first of all, I, uh, I want to recommend some podcasts, the Frank Film Club. That's the one with Maisie Williams. Also, the big picture with Sean Hennessy and Amanda Dobbins. I steal ideas from them just about every week. So I should just admit that. Also, of course, the Right Good podcast with uh, Raquel Benedict, R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and Nobody Asked Sean, S-H-A-W-N, those two podcasts as well. Um, I'm going to just end here by saying that uh, Burt Bacharach died this week. He was 94 years old. He didn't get cheated, uh, but uh, in, in any way, I think. Um, but it, it's a profound moment for people like me who've been influenced by his music so much over the years in so many different ways. What I'm going to really recommend is if this weekend, if it's sort of anywhere in you, um, if you got, you know, Spotify or in my case, title or whatever, make yourself a Burt Bacharach podcast and kind of range around a little bit. There's just, you know, I mean, he doesn't have 10 good songs. He has like 40 or 50 really good songs. And a lot of them are very different from one another. They don't all sound like, you know, do you know the way to San Jose or something? Not that there's anything wrong with that song, but they, they have a lot of, um, uh, uh, different features to them. Uh, also, the the lyricism, the lyrics of, of Hal David uh, are completely amazing. So, yeah, I don't know. Are you there with another girl? Is an underappreciated one. You'll never get to heaven if you break my heart. Uh, also, um, uh, don't be afraid to dip into the collaboration with Elvis Costello. I guess there was another collaboration on the way. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But uh, Painted from Memory is the album that the two men did together. Um, and it's actually, I think, pretty remarkable in the way that Costello manages to preserve and elicit a, a lot of um, of Bacharach sound. We're going to close, though, with, uh, I think, the masterpiece, which is A House Is Not a Home. Uh, this, uh, uh, in particular, is notable for, I think, David's lyric here is amazing. It starts out as almost a kind of musing to no one, and then he makes it more and more clear that, no, this is being sung to a specific person who has left. Uh, and there, it has become a real standard. All kinds of people have covered it. I just yesterday discovered Kristen Jenoweth's version of it, so like, why not? But like, there are 20 really good versions of this amazing song. Make yourself a Burt Bacharach playlist this weekend. And one of us has a broken heart Now and then I call your name And suddenly your face appears
with me